It is shocking that an industry as moneyed, influential, and powerful as nuclear would resort to petty interference in the lives of those of us who oppose its deadly technology. But then you hear nuclear engineer, whistleblower, and safety expert Arnie Gunderson explain that his Wikipedia credentials kept being changed to undermine his expertise. So he had a computer-savvy friend try to figure out what was happening. And then Arnie tells you, With Wikipedia, you can discover the IP address of the person who made the change. And he followed eight of those changes. Seven of them went back to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's office, the home office in Bethesda, Maryland. And another one went back to Exelon. So the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and Exelon were making the same changes constantly. Every time I would change it, they would change it back, constantly changing my online credentials. Well, when you hear about such outrageous, ridiculous actions emanating from inside the federal agency tasked with keeping us safe from nuclear dangers, you get another glimpse of the numbnutsery that contributes to that seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, an extended interview with Arnie Gunderson, Chief Engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education. Arnie has been a regular guest on this show, sharing his data-based expertise on a wide range of nuclear issues. Now, he offers his most personal interview to date, sharing what happened when, as a nuclear industry insider, he stood up for safety issues, and how this led to his current position as a respected, trusted researcher who can translate the most arcane nuclear industry double-talk and jargon into terms that even a high school science class or an unscientific podcaster can understand. We will also have numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness and more honest nuclear information than will be heard on any of the Democratic presidential candidate debates. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, June 18, 2019, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting with... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of the week. The late author Sir Terry Pratchett, English author of fantasy novels, including the Discworld series of 41 books, worked for a while as press officer for nuclear power stations owned by the Central Electricity Generating Board in England. 
In a recently published collection of his personal essays, he wrote, It should be impossible, completely impossible, to pour nuclear waste down a lavatory. But, he said, speaking of this one worker, when he was done cleaning the top of the reactor, he tipped a bucket of, well, to him, dirty water, down a lavatory, and it just so happened that the health physicist checking the sump outside shortly afterwards heard the Geiger counter suddenly go, bing, probably made a lot more noise than that. Terry goes on, it was then down to engineers to figure out how to find the radioactive lumps in 80,000 gallons of that solid stuff that comes out the bottom of toilets and is a word that I cannot say for broadcast. Terry went on, just feeling around was not an option. Finally, they came up with a plan. All the stuff was pumped out into tankers and taken to a coal-fired power plant in the Midlands and burned to ash. The ash was put on a conveyor belt and run under a Geiger counter. And the stray lumps of radioactive stuff were recovered. No word on the possible contamination of the tankers or the coal-fired power plant, or the scientists who were checking for the stuff. Sir Terry went on to say, One of the nuclear power stations I was press officer for exploded. He then clarified, Well, it didn't really explode. Well, not much. I mean, it sort of leaked a bit. But not much. You could hardly see it. And no one died. Trust me on this. No word on which four reactors Pratchard actually worked for or any explosive-type-ish accidents at a Midlands nuclear reactor in or around 1980 when he served. But no matter how you look at it, that's why this story is this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, None Nuts of the Week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first... Each week, the nuclear industry provides us with new nightmares. But you couldn't tell any of it was happening if all you follow is mainstream media. That's why Nuclear Hot Seat exists, to give caring, compassionate, and concerned people like you a regular weekly dose of nuclear news you can count on to be honest, vetted, and footnoted. Nuclear Hot Seat is the longest-running program anywhere that focuses exclusively on nuclear issues. Now beginning its ninth year, we have a long history of scooping mainstream media on nuclear issues and behind the scenes, providing links and introductions between activists, researchers, and reporters so that our stories get out far beyond this show. You can count on Nuclear Hot Seat to get behind the scenes, under the skin, and into the heart of nuclear matters every week, with fresh information and an unrelenting perspective. So if having this information helps you, we need you to help us. Help us keep getting this information to you by sending a one-time donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red donate button, and that's where you can give a donation that is a one-time one or a continuing donation of any size. To make things easy for those of us on a budget, there's also a big green donate button that allows you to quickly set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month. 
That's about the same as you would spend on a cup of coffee and a tip here in the U.S., and it represents the lifeblood of this show. So help celebrate the start of our ninth year by buying Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee, or several, and know that whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you are listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview, and it is a very special one for me. Arnie Gunderson is a nuclear engineer and expert witness, as well as the chief engineer for Fairwinds Associates Incorporated. He and his wife, Maggie Gunderson, operate Fairwinds and their website as a hub for fact-based, undistorted information about nuclear power in order to inform and educate people around the world, legislative officials, and members of the press concerning the scientific and economic issues relating to the production of electricity and the sources of energy used to create power. The Fairwinds crew works hard to demystify nuclear power through education, as well as show a path to a secure energy future that is both financially viable and environmentally compatible. Arnie has figured prominently in our ability to understand the impact and implications of Fukushima, Three Mile Island, San Onofre, and many other nuclear sites and accidents. This just names a few of them. But his data-driven honesty has come with a personal price. I had the rare opportunity of interviewing Arnie face-to-face during this year's Three Mile Island 40th Anniversary Commemorations where he opened up and shared not only shocking revelations about the actions of the NRC and the nuclear industry against him, but private details about the impact of those actions on his and Maggie's lives. Note that we spoke on April 1, 2019, which was before the recent NRC ruling that it was perfectly all right for Southern California Edison to continue burying San Onofre's highly radioactive nuclear waste in five-eighths-inch thin canisters within 100 feet of the Pacific Ocean. In this interview several months beforehand, Arnie calls it. Arnie Gunderson, always a pleasure to speak with you for Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks, Sylvia. I love being here. You've been doing some deep examination of the culture of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and I believe the word that you use in connection with it is hubris. Tell us what you mean. You know, I've been looking at my career over 47 years now, and uh, how I got into it, how I was accepted into the priesthood, the orthodoxy that comes with being in the priesthood, Meaning the nuclear priesthood, the guys on the inside. Yes, yes. And then uh, the whistleblowing, which is basically like being defrocked from the priesthood. And all of the assumptions that when you're on the inside, you take for granted. And when you're on the outside, you realize, oh, my God, this place is fundamentally corrupt. Tell us about the whistleblowing incident and what it led to. Well, in 1990, I was a senior vice president for a company that was licensed by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to dismantle nuclear power reactors. And I was on the Radiation Safety Committee. And I found a whole series of violations at the company. We violated our license repeatedly. And I told the president of the company about the violations. And I really didn't think it was terrible. We found them. We identified the problems. But he was getting sole source work from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. What does that mean? They were funneling work to us 
And if we had a stain on our license, they wouldn't funnel work to us anymore. Millions of dollars a year. And this is a whole tech-like company that was working on dismantling reactors? Yes, it was called Nuclear Energy Services. Back in the 80s, I, I was a chapter author of one of the the first decommissioning handbook. So it was, it was something the company did well before anybody was in that business. So I found the violations, told the president of the company, and he fired me. And What was the time frame between telling him and being fired? Two weeks. And I had run the most profitable division in the company for uh, 10 years. And, um, of course, they claimed it was a reduction in force. And everybody else who got thrown out with me had lost money, and then I had made $20 million. So it didn't make a lot of sense. So I went to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and I figured that there's whistleblower protection, and that I would, uh, I would be exonerated. Well, it was like calling for the cavalry when, you're, when, when your fort is under attack. And the cavalry came over the, the hill, and they started shooting at me, too. And the, the, uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission sided with my company. In what way? They said there were no violations, and, uh, and I was absolutely wrong. So... Maggie, my wife, was a reporter, and we had had some newspaper coverage, which allowed us, and I was the senior VP, which is the highest ranking whistleblower at the time, and um, we were able to get some congressional help. John Glenn, uh, Senator John Glenn, agreed to fire up the inspector general and look at my case. And after about a year, they issued two reports. The first one was that I was absolutely right. All of the things that I identified were true. And they identified a guy at the NRC, his name is John White, who deliberately told the inspectors to change the evaluation and to, um, not to exonerate me, but to screw me. So this guy, John White, who was an executive in Region 1, out of King of Prussia in Pennsylvania, told the inspectors to, to alter the report to, uh, to make me look foolish. So this is a guy at the NRC telling the people in the company to basically lie. Telling the people at the NRC to lie as they wrote the report. The, the people that wrote the report had a boss. That boss was John White. And John White told him to alter the report to make me look foolish. So that was in 1993 that uh, I was exonerated by the NRC's own inspector general. And the second report they, they wrote confirmed the other allegation that the company was bribing NRC inspectors to get sole source work. So the, basically I was fundamentally exonerated. But besides being exonerated, was there anything else that came to you as a result or it was uh, the Pyrrhic victory of, well, at least I'm not a bad guy in the records? Well, it was a Pyrrhic victory because I was sued for a million and a half dollars by the company because I wrote to the Senate. Now, the reason I wrote to the Senate is because the Nuclear Regulatory Commission botched the inspection. So then I wrote to the, the, the Senate, and they sued me. Now, the attorney I had, a great guy named Ernie Hadley, wrote to the NRC, and we had the testimony of the president of the company, and uh, he acknowledged he was suing me because I wrote to Congress. And he said that was, that was libel and slander. That's a protected activity. If you have a safety concern and you write to Congress about it, you're protected. So we gave the NRC on a silver platter all the evidence they need to say that Gunderson was being screwed 
for this protected activity. And the NRC refused to take action. In a letter back, they said, no, nah, this is a civil case. It has nothing to do with, uh, with us. If Mr. Gunderson wins the civil case, maybe we'll pursue it. But it's just a civil matter, and it's totally irrelevant that he wrote to Congress. That was the sole basis for my being sued for a million and a half dollars. So we were driven, Maggie and I were driven into bankruptcy. We lost the house in foreclosure. To tell you how bad it was, we, we wanted to just get out of the nuclear industry and buy a video store. And we were going to open a video store. And um, we went to the bank, and you have to list your liabilities. And I had to say I was sued for a million and a half dollars. I'm in the middle of a million and a half dollar lawsuit. And um, I couldn't buy a video store because I was being sued for a million and a half dollars. So ultimately, six years later, the company settled out of court, and uh, all I can say is it was for a dollar and other valuable considerations. And um, then life goes on. You know, we we had to start our life over after uh, losing the house in foreclosure and uh, going bankrupt. And, you know, once you go bankrupt, you can't, you have no credit for 10 years, so we had to buy everything cash and get by. And now um, life goes on, and, uh, but that fundamentally altered the way I viewed nuclear regulation. You know, I had thought when I was on the inside that these guys were tough, and they're anything but tough. They're a guardian to protect the nuclear industry, not to protect you and I, that's for sure. Is this a matter of a few bad apples? Is this systemic within the NRC? Was it once a protector and somewhere along the line it turned? It's a systemic culture within the NRC. It starts back with the atom bomb and the secrecy and the old atomic energy agency, which had to promote and regulate. And when they spun off Department of Energy, which was the promotion side, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was supposed to regulate. Really, the same people continued to work there, and they just changed hats. So the mentality of promoting the nuclear uh, industry and protecting the nuclear industry is, is woven into the fabric of the NRC. It's interesting because in Vermont, on the Vermont Yankee leak that they had back in 2010, guess who was put in place, uh, put in charge, of the tritium leak at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, John White. The guy who screwed me in 1990 was placed in charge of overseeing the NRC's tritium leak uh, inspections at Vermont Yankee. Uh, Compare and contrast, how was he at Vermont Yankee as compared with the way he was on your case? Well, we had the report from the Inspector General that showed that John White had screwed me in 1990. So we went to a a hearing where John White was there, and uh, Maggie confronted him with Robbie Lebser on the camera. And we photographed the exchange, uh, and uh, it it doesn't make Robbie Lebser's film, but it's it's fascinating uh, anyway. So Maggie confronts um, John White with this report, and John White said, if I had it to do over again, I do the same thing. Was this personal animosity or just business as usual for him? I think he was fundamentally rattled by being confronted by Maggie and realizing the damage he did because two weeks later he resigned from the NRC and with no warning. So I, I understand he was rattled after being on film and, 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 and talking to us. But it's just another indication, though, that 
this guy's career blossoms. He makes, you know, 100 grand a year for 20 years. That's two million bucks in salary. Meanwhile, Maggie and I are driven into bankruptcy, and his attitude is, I do the same thing today. You know, so they don't learn. And that's, since 2010, there's been a couple of other cases that that's occurred in. One is one of your favorites, San Onofre. I was hired by Friends of the Earth to look at San Onofre, and I'd like to think that the work we did led to exposing the, uh, the, the flaws in that steam generator design. And we had a DDoS attack, a distributed denial of service attack on our website during that time. And the other expert that Friends of the Earth hired, John Large, his site was also attacked. So, you know, you can't say who did it. It's one of these random attacks on the web. But the thing we had in common is both of us were working on San Onofre. Well, it turns out that at the same time, I was being attacked on the Internet. And Maggie discovered that words on the Wikipedia page about me were being changed from expert witness to for hire nuclear activist and lots of other changes were being made to my Wikipedia webpage. I didn't write the Wikipedia webpage to begin with, but it was accurate and, and, uh, and I had no problems with it. So Maggie contacted a friend of ours who looked at it and with Wikipedia, you can discover the IP address of people, of the person who made the change. And he followed eight of those changes. Seven of them went back to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's office, the home office in Bethesda, Maryland. And another one went back to Exelon. So the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and Exelon were making the same changes in my constantly. Every time I would change it, they would change it back, uh, constantly changing my, uh, my online credentials. How did this impact your ability to do your work, or did it? It did. Um, we discovered it because I was heading off to uh, uh, the UK to speak in Parliament, and the Telegraph, a, a big paper, contacted us and said they weren't going to be covering it because I was nothing but a troublemaker. And Maggie said, how did you come to that? She said, well, your Wikipedia page. So we took the information that this person had compiled about the changes in our Wikipedia page and gave it to Senator Leahy, who was our Vermont senator and the ranking Democrat. He gave it to the inspector general. I said, what the hell's going on here? The inspector general finished the report, never told Leahy or I it was done, and about a year later, I said, this report's got to be done. So I asked Leahy to look into it. And son of a gun, the report was complete, and they wouldn't give it to me. So I had to file a Freedom of Information Act to get a report about me that I had requested. And so the, we have the copy of the report now. And my name is not redacted, but the individuals at the NRC are. But the inspector general found that a very senior person at the NRC had, um, on seven occasions, gone in on company time, being paid for by U.S. taxpayers in an NRC office on an NRC computer, and gone in and changed my webpage. They interviewed the guy. And he not only did he admit to doing it, but he admits to training other people at the NRC how to do it. Specifically so, for you or for anyone? For anyone. He said, here's how you change Wikipedia pages. Watch, let's change Arnie Gunderson's. 
so there were other senior people at the NRC who knew that this guy was, was attacking me on the internet. Since then, we know who that person is, but I'm not going to mention his name on the air. May he rot in hell. But then the inspector general took this admission to the OGC, which is the Office of General Counsel, the NRC's top dog lawyers. And uh, the top dog lawyer at the NRC told the inspector general, it's perfectly all right for an NRC person to attack Arnie Gunderson on the internet during company time, being paid for by taxpayers using NRC computers. They have a First Amendment right to do it. That seems so wrong on so many levels. It absolutely is. That means, then, that it is all right for anyone in government to attack anyone they don't like or contradicts them by any means semi-legal or at least digitally available and take them down at will. You're absolutely right. And, and that's what, you know, I, I looked at your expression that was like gobsmacked or dumbstruck or whatever the term is for the moment. And that, that's my reaction. How can the legal branch of the NRC say that their people have the First Amendment right to do that? Now, if they want to go home and at midnight go out and change my, my thing from their home, I guess I, you know, I might question their objectivity, but hey, they, they have that right. But to sit at their desk while being paid for by you and I and using government computers and uh, teaching other people in the government how to do it, to alter people's uh, web profiles adversely, which adversely affected people's opinion of me, how can they do that? And uh, I have no recourse. Uh, it's, uh, There's no attorney who is above the NRC attorneys? There's no way to question this... I don't even know what to call it. Travesty? Yeah, it's not a, now it's not a cover-up. You know, we have, it, it's been exposed. But as far as I know, the person's still there. The person wasn't even reprimanded for doing it. You know, short of a congressional hearing to embarrass the NRC with this lawyer's opinion, uh, First Amendment right, I really don't know what, uh, what alternatives there are. And, of course, you know, the Congress is such that especially the Senate. You know, I can't, John Glenn was, was a you know, progressive Dem, and there was a lot of oversight of the NRC at the time. But, but the Senate has flipped, and the opposite pressures are on the NRC. You know, NRC oversight of the industry is much more lax now because the Senate is less demanding. So I really don't think I'll uh, get a fair hearing out of the Senate, even though you know, Senator Leahy is the senior most ranking Democrat, but he's in a minority. So oversight of the NRC, public oversight of the NRC, is, is just not going to happen. I always like the word oversight because it means two things. It means overseeing or overlooking. So the oversight of the NRC, I think, is a phrase that we will find very useful. Let's take a look at some of the issues that are up right now. When I left California, San Onofre was going through the final stages of the NRC responding over the whole tech near miss of an accident, the gouging of the five-eighths inch thick canisters, and the fact that they're burying the waste within 100 feet of the Pacific Ocean, which of course is rising. 
Any comments? I, I got to go back a couple of years before that. When I was working for Friends of the Earth and San Onofre was shut down, but still uh, they were still planning on, on firing it back up. I compiled a whole list of lies that the, uh, um, the people at uh, San Onofre had made to the NRC. That Southern California Edison? Southern California Edison had made to the NRC. And they're actually called materially false statements. And a materially false statement is a statement that's wrong that causes a regulator to come to the wrong conclusion. So the Friends of the Earth compiled my report in something called the 2.206 petition, which is the only way citizens can address the NRC and seek regress. So the, um, uh, this 2.206 petition was submitted. I made a formal presentation to the Petition Review Board, and the NRC has six months to act on a 2.206 petition by their own clock. Well, six months came and went. They didn't do anything. And we clearly identified that the people at... Uh, the lawyers and Southern California Edison had not told the NRC the truth repeatedly. So anyway, six months comes and goes, and they don't do anything. A year comes and goes, and they don't do anything. A year and a half comes and goes, they don't do anything. Two years comes and goes, and they don't do anything. And finally, they write back to Friends of the Earth, because they, they were the petitioner, and they say, well, the plant is shut down, so your issue is moot. So the same people now are at San Onofre with the gouge casks that were at San Onofre when the steam generators failed. And the same regulator is overseeing them. So I don't think the NRC is going to lift a finger this time because they didn't lift a finger last time. The decision may have already been made by the time this interview gets aired. But as we sit here now, in this past week, we were supposed to get a response from the NRC regarding whether they were going to continue to allow the loading of the dry casks at San Onofre, which has been shut down since the near miss last summer. What is your opinion of what the situation is there? I am absolutely sure the NRC will let it continue because that's what the NRC does. They're not a guard dog, they're, they're a lap dog. And I've discovered that repeatedly in my, in my career. You know, when citizens groups come to me and they ask for help, I tell them you're going to lose. It doesn't matter if you're right or wrong, you're going to lose. This agency is fundamentally corrupt and will find a way not to take action, which they did on this thing with Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth said after the final decision that, well, we're not going to move forward because the plant is closed and your decision's moot. They could have gone to court, but who's got that kind of money? So it, we just decided to, okay, well, that nobody's going to be punished. In the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, it's the little guys who get punished. It's the whistleblowers that are, uh, no one in senior management at any utility or plant owner has ever been punished by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for screwing a whistleblower or for screwing the public or not telling the truth to the public. It's always the low-lying underlings in the, in the culture that, uh, that get punished. So I, I can't believe, I, I love the people on San Onofre, the people in the community surrounding San Onofre, I should say, but they're going to lose because the agency that's overseeing the flawed canisters is not willing to admit that the canisters are flawed. I'm sorry, I just, 
it's just obvious to me that no matter how good your technical argument is, you're going to lose with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Is there any kind of meta fight back we can do? If we can't win at San Onofre, if we can't win with Gunderson, is there any kind of larger campaign that the movement and concerned individuals, especially in these communities around reactors, might be able to take that would give us some recourse or some way of changing the direction of the agency? The closest I experienced to that was in the early 90s when I was a whistleblower. And um, both houses of Congress were controlled by the Democrats. There was really good oversight of the NRC at that time. Joe Lieberman ran the NRC Oversight Committee, and while he's um, blamed by progressives in the 2000s for being incredibly conservative, in the early 1990s, he was a, a, a liberal dem and a great overseer of the NRC. He held their feet to the fire. But then in 94 came the Gingrich Revolution, and the House and, and Senate swung and really have not gotten back to effective nuclear oversight. I think Ed Markey does a phenomenal job, and others, Bernie Sanders does a phenomenal job of holding their feet to the fire. But they're both in the minority. I mean, they can embarrass them in public, but to expect the agency to change is going to take uh, you know, control of both houses of Congress. And that hasn't happened in a long time. You know, there's a lot of lobbying money being spent, even on the Democratic sides. What do you mean by that? Well, when I when I lived in Vermont, Bernie Sanders lived on the same street, and, and it was a you know it's a, it's a really middle class street. It's not highfalutin at all, as you'd expect with Bernie. And Bernie was walking down the street one time, and, and he and Jane were together, and I I was outside, and I said, "Hey, Bernie," and we're talking, and I said. Uh, there was an opening on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. There's five appointed commissioners by Congress. And I said, hey, Bernie, you know, there's an opening on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I want to be considered as a commissioner. And uh, you get what you see with Bernie. And, and he looks at me and he laughs right in my face. And he says, are you kidding? There's no way in hell they'd let you have that job. He knew who you were and he knew oh, your background. Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're on a first-name basis. That's this lady. And, and he's absolutely right. The... The five commissioners are appointed by Congress. So Bernie could have appointed me, but they're vetted by NEI, the Nuclear Energy Institute, which is the lobbying arm of the nuclear industry. So every one of those five commissioners has to be approved by the people who they're supposedly overseeing. And so, no, there's, there's no congressional recourse to getting strong regulators in. The last one we had was Yasco. And, you know, basically they ran him out of town on a rail. Uh, and frankly, he was not as tough as I wish he was. You know, he was, he was pretty much white bread at the commission. And yet he was viewed as, as antagonistic to nuclear power. So Greg Gasco was the last one. And, you know, there was a couple before that, but uh, Peter Bradford and a few others that questioned nuclear. But they don't last long. And... Uh, they're always in a minority. I mean, Greg was outvoted four to one, and that was considered heresy to have that one vote out there to, to, uh, to have. On to behalf of safety, usually. Yes, yes. And on San Onofre, uh, I, I met with Greg when San Onofre had the steam generator problems. Was he still in the commission at that point? He, yes, yes. And he was uh, uh, active and engaged on the problem. 
And he said, well, we're going to do a root cause analysis. And I said, excuse me, Mr. Chairman, you're not. And he says, yes, we are. We're going to do a root cause analysis. What is that? What does that do? Um, a root cause analysis means you burrow down and down and down and down until you find the fundamental problem that caused the steam generators to fail. And he, I, I said, read the letter that your staff wrote. And he says, it says right here, a cause analysis. I said, yeah, it says a cause analysis. It doesn't say a root cause analysis. And that means that your staff has no intention of digging deep enough to find out what went wrong. I had been certified in something called Kepner-Trigo decision analysis back in the, God, I hate to admit it, 1976. And that's the same technique that the NRC uses today, Kepner-Trigo decision analysis. So I know how to do a, a, a root cause analysis. And on San Onofre, this is not the canisters, but on the issue of what caused the steam generators to fail, they fundamentally changed the design and they didn't look at those differences from the old steam generator to the new steam generator. The same thing happened on the canisters where some of the feet at the bottom of the interior part of the canister failed. This is San Onofre again. These are the Holtec 5 eighths inch thick canisters. Yes. 5 eighths inch thin canisters. Thank you, Donna Gilmore. <laughs> yes, those canisters inside had a, a bump up that the NRC had approved to allow gases and water to move, but gases after they're dry. And the, the uh, Holtec changed that design, and those bump-ups failed. And the NRC let them get away without a root cause analysis of what the problem was. And um, it goes on and on and on. At San Onofre, it's a classic example. The process to make a change is called 5059. It's a part of the federal law called Part 50, Nuclear Reactors, Paragraph 59. And it says when you make a, a change, you have to notify the NRC. Well, they made changes on the steam generator, and they didn't notify the NRC. And they made changes on the Holtec canisters, and they didn't notify the NRC. The attitude in the industry is it's easier to get forgiveness than it is to get approval. And if they asked, it would have taken a year or two for the NRC to figure it out. But if they don't ask and things fail after it's been done, the NRC will say, okay, you're good boys. And, you know, the, like I encountered that nobody's going to be punished for avoiding the safety analysis that should have been done. So in essence, there really is no protection for American citizens, and of course, nuclear, something goes wrong, it's worldwide, it's, it's around the globe. But in essence, there is no protection when it comes to nuclear reactors in the United States. You know, what protections there were in the 70s have been weakened and weakened and weakened over the years. And, you know, for instance, on the new reactor designs, the staff is only allowed to ask one round of questions. The staff of the NRC? Yes, the NRC staff, when they have a question about the new reactor designs, ask the question, and if the licensee gives some sort of off-the-wall response, then they're not allowed to say, no, that's not what we asked, and ask the question a second time. So, no, the... the uh, Where did that one come from? Oh, but that's industry pressure to speed up the licensing process. You'll hear them talk about, well, it takes too long for the NRC to uh, license a power plant. They need to trust us more. It's the same thing that happened with Boeing. And the speeding up of the approval process keeps costs down and profits up. 
and keep the regulator out of your pants is sort of the attitude that industry has in general. But, you know, in Boeing, planes fall out of the sky and nuclear power plants, you get meltdowns. We are so screwed up. I want to apologize to all future generations, both living and any that might survive this particular era, for what it is that we have done to this planet. I, you know, I don't feel defeated, and they need people like you and me to continue to embarrass them publicly. Dave Lockbaum has said, we don't need new regulations to shut down nuclear power. We just need the NRC to enforce the old regulations. And that's exactly the problem, is that we've got all the stringent regulations on the books, but when the cop doesn't enforce them, the public's not protected. Other than what you and I are doing, and so many listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat who are involved, what tactics or strategies might we take from your perspective that might be effective at least in raising the profile of the problems? Well, I think the people out in Southern California have the activism and the uh, visibility in the press to keep the feet to the fire. Uh, I think the people in Vermont had the same thing. There's that movie Power Struggle, which outlines how people power ultimately succeeded in shining the light on corporate power. But it takes an energized base of people with adequate technical expertise. You know, the, I think that my role in both of those was not sufficient, but, but certainly uh, you know, necessary to helping the, those causes. Activists can't do it alone, and they, they need a, a technical case. But if the technical case is the only thing out there, uh, the NRC will run you over. Even on the Internet, they'll run you over. So um, I think it, it requires both a, a strong activist space, like the people in California are doing now and the people in Vermont did earlier. But that's not enough. And a strong technical case is certainly not enough because the NRC has so many ways of just ignoring a strong technical case. I think the third arm of that would be the need to have media coverage. And, of course, these days, reporters reporting news coverage is being progressively weakened, and I think that's no accident, because if we don't know, we can't respond. And that's when the PR hacks take over, which the nuclear industry is so good at. I'm just surprised that the attack on you came from within the NRC, as opposed to just being fobbed off on one of their PR agencies. You know, there's a great example of effective newspaper coverage is the uh, Tampa Bay Times. Ivan Penn, who was at Tampa Bay Times now, then, but is now with the uh, New York Times, wrote a series of reports on um, the four new reactors that were going to be built at Levy County and, and at Turkey Point and showed that they made no cost sense. And he showed that the corruption within the Florida Public Service Commission and within the Florida legislature. And those plans were canceled because the Tampa Bay Times had the courage to go forward. But the Tampa Bay Times is independently owned. And those independent channels of journalism are gradually getting bought up. Gannett owns a whole bunch of them. And they strip the staff and wind up doing infomercials instead of real news coverage. So you're absolutely right. An effective press is critical, and we're getting less and less of that over time. A personal question for you. 
you spent this first portion of your life being, as you said, part of the priesthood, an insider in the nuclear industry at some pretty high levels. And then everything turned around and now you have seen the light, the larger truth about the industry. How much of the work that you're doing is perhaps being driven by the need to pay back a karmic debt or to make good on your, your misspent earlier years? Oh, that's a good question. I, I struggle with that frequently. Um, you know, when, when Fukushima happened, Maggie and I saw the same lies that we saw at Three Mile Island being repeated again. And we really committed ourselves to making sure that those lies were not perpetuated like they were at TMI. So I don't know if it's a karmic debt. It's certainly, I'm working on, you know, I just hit 70 this year, and there's like a public legacy I feel I owe the world. And uh, this is the time to leave a legacy. There's so few people in the world that do what Maggie and I do that uh, we feel we have to keep on doing whether or not it's this misspent youth <laughs> or, or whether it's just an understanding that, you know, you, you owe it to society to, to speak truth to power when you finally recognize that uh, the truth and power are not embodied in the same entity. And, and I realized that in 1990, that the truth was on one side of the argument and the power was on the other. So, you know, since then, I've been speaking truth to power, and now I'm, uh, I'm interested in in leaving a legacy, you know, telling a, a story at Three Mile Island that will be used by historians in the future and to not allow that same myth to be perpetuated at Fukushima. Where's your book? Well, we have one book in Japanese, which was really well received, but it's in Japanese. Maggie's working on a book, and eventually we'll get there. Uh, but uh, it takes time, and frankly, there's a lot of... You know, like the Woolsey Fire we're working on and work in Fukushima we're working on. Um, so it takes time and um, there's many other things that, that are competing for it. But Maggie is working on a book based on the Japanese book. Does this deal with strictly nuclear issues or does it include your story? The Japanese book included our story. There was a chapter about the travails of the Gunderson family and it will include our story. So we'll look at nuclear power through the lens of our experience. Fairwinds has been very involved with the aftermath of the Woolsey Fire in the greater Los Angeles area, which started out within 1,000 yards of the building that had a nuclear meltdown back in 1957, 1959. There were four of them over, over 10 years, so you can't go wrong. <laughs> in any event, there have been samples taken of dirt and dust based on the premise that the smoke that was dispersed from there may have spread radionuclides. And you have helped facilitate that getting to Worcester Polytechnic and Marco Kaltofen. Where is that now? Is there anything that you can tell us about that process? Yeah, um, there's another party. Certainly the Worcester Poly and Dr. Kaltofen is an important piece of it. The other important piece of it is PSR LA. Physicians for Social Responsibility in L.A., and Fairwinds. So the three organizations have combined to do some really good citizen science collection of ash samples from you know, anywhere from the, the, the mountainous region where the, the, the power plant was, where the research reactor was, all the way down to, uh, out to the coast. 
So we've collected 350 samples, which is an astronomical number for a good, a good science paper. So we have grad students at Worcester Poly now looking at those samples. But it's a, it's a three-step process, and we're at the phase now where it's getting expensive, and frankly, we don't have the money. So if there's any viewer out there who wants to, um, wants to donate to Fairwinds, we desperately need it because we have data. We're at the point now where we've done the first phase of 100 of the samples. And what does that consist of? It's relatively simple, uh, looking in an environment that has very little background. We'll put a sample in, and we'll watch the radiation coming off of that with not a terribly sophisticated radiation detector, but, but one that much more sophisticated than the Geiger counter I carry around. So now I carry a $1,000 Geiger counter around. This is more expensive than that, but it's, it's still it's just telling us, wow, this sample needs more analysis. And we've got a bunch of samples now from that first 100. We have 250 to go that need further analysis. We took slides, little lab slides with sticky surfaces on it. And to give you an idea of the cost, if we want to analyze one of those slides beyond where we got it now, it's $750 for the scanning electron microscope. And we've got a bunch of slides. I really don't want to go into the exact number. And we have 250 more samples to go through that initial filter. So we're at the phase now where it's becoming expensive. And I think there's some good science to be done here. Volunteers were wonderful. The work we did at Fairwinds is wonderful. And the work that Worcester Polly and, and Dr. Kalkhofen are doing are wonderful. But at this point, we need to amp up. We need to turn on the high-powered equipment that's three, four, five hundred $500 an hour to run. Dr. Kaltofen and I have another paper uh, coming out about the research we took in Japan, and we're up against that same constraint. We can publish a paper, but it would be so much better if we had more lab time on these expensive instruments. So we're being throttled for, for, uh, for funds right now, and we'd just love it if somebody stepped up and, and, and could help. What kind of dollar amount are we looking at? Well, probably, you know, the work in Japan, like five grand. And uh, the work at Woolsey, perhaps, you know, five to ten times more than that. So twenty-five to 50000 Yes. That's actually not that much money as the world turns. Well, the NEI, the Nuclear Energy Institute, their annual budget is $100 million a year. So they blow that in about five minutes. But, you know, on our side of the argument, the citizens have always been dramatically underfunded, and, and what Fairwinds is encountering now is just a part of that. So my hat's off to PSR, L.A., and the students at Worcester Poly who are doing the work, but, uh, but we can only take it so far without cash. Is there anything else you can think of that you wanted to cover or that you'd like to impart that we haven't done yet? One story that I'll share with you. It's another example of the NRC not doing the right thing. I was hired by the people out in Michigan to look at Fermi 3. And Fermi 3 is one of these Renaissance reactors that's sitting in hiatus now because it's just too expensive. But it turns out that they didn't have quality assurance while they were writing the design. And I caught them at it. They clearly had no quality assurance that 
And what is that? Is that somebody who oversees it or? Well, there's an organization that's has always been set up at nuclear power plants to oversee the work, to make sure that it's rigidly controlled, to make sure nobody's cheating. And they didn't do this? Detroit Edison decided to save money. They would not have a quality assurance program. Because who needs quality? Right, who needs quality? It's just the nuclear power. So I've, I've had, this is actually a requirement in the law, 10 CFR Appendix B, requires that the applicant, which is Detroit Edison, have a quality assurance program. It's crystal clear. So the people in Michigan filed a petition with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and they made the case that they had no QA program, and they were required to. So we went to the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board, and uh, Detroit Edison said, well, we weren't the applicant until the day we applied. So all of the work we did running up to, all of the design work we did, all of the seismic borings we did, we weren't the applicant until we turned that report over to you. So therefore, we comply with the law. And <laughs> I made the argument that, I'm sorry, but that's wrong. And I won. The Atomic Safety and Licensing Board agreed that Detroit Edison should have had a QA program because they were the applicant from the time they started looking for a nuclear site and doing the boring holes and stuff like that. Well, our friends at the NRC said, well, yes, you're right, Mr. Gunderson, that they, were, they should have had a QA program, and they didn't. But the work they did had enough quality, and we're going to let it happen anyway. So the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board said, well, Mr. Gunderson is right. They didn't have a QA program. We're going to side with the staff and say, well, they, they were close enough and we're not going to require them to go back and do all this again. Then this was one of these examples where the plant is permanently mothballed and will probably never be built because it's way too costly. And the citizens, we knew we could win in court, but who's got the money to hire the lawyer to go to court? So, uh, we're which is that, what they count on. Yes, which is exactly what happened earlier in our conversation with San Onofre. You know, when a case gets thrown out, because on materially false statements, or this one where you didn't have a QA program, but really, ah, we're not going to force you to have one. And in both cases, we were right, and in both cases, the citizens could not take them to court because they simply couldn't afford the lawyers. And that's what they count on. No, I want to thank, yeah, I'm the, the, the technical guru, but the media strategy and all of the systems behind Fairwinds both tactical and strategic, were Maggie's. And it's almost like people think of Anderson Cooper of CNN, not realizing there's 20,000 people behind him called CNN. Well, Fairwinds is more than Arnie Gunderson. And, and in fact, the strategic focus of Fairwinds and the tactical issues, things like paying our couple of employees and simple things like that, as well as the media strategy is hers. And my hat's off to her. Well, Arnie, it's always a pleasure to speak with you for Nuclear Hot Seat, and I want to wish you all best going forward, and thanks for being my guest. All right, thanks, Libby. Arnie Gunderson, Chief Engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education. You can learn much, much more about the phenomenal good works of Fairwinds and sign up for their email feed at fairwinds.org. And there is an E in the middle, F-A-I-R-E, wins. 
Of course, we will link to it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 417. Activist shout out. The group winwithoutwar.org has a great petition out there to demand presidential candidates oppose first use of nuclear weapons. That would be important because anyone who's president does have the ability to use these weapons without any restraints whatsoever. She or he gets to do it and nobody can stop him. So this is a good petition to put out there. Now, the question is whether any of the 20-plus candidates for the Democratic nomination, you realize this is larger than the largest possible field in the Kentucky Derby, but there are more than 20 of them. Let's see if we can get even one of them to speak to this issue on the nationally televised debates. Here's today's final thought. I'm still on vacation, and thought is not allowed. I'll get back to it upon my return. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June 18, 2019. Thanks to all of you for listening, and a big shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world, 123 countries on six continents, and counting. Know that if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, you can send that information to me at info at nuclearhotseat.com. If you don't want to miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, you can go to our website, look for the big yellow opt-in box, put in your first name and your email address, and you will get a copy of the show delivered to your inbox every week as soon as it becomes available. And if you appreciate weekly, verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. We really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2019. Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that luck is a terrible safety plan when it comes to nuclear anything. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call, so don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.